Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. We are a weekly Columbus-centric podcast focusing on the civics, lifestyle, entertainment, and people of our city. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. This week, I sat down with local composer and drummer, Dr. Mark Lomax II. We discussed Mark's background and projects, and we dove deep in on music. Here is a brief rundown on what we discussed. Creating a vision for your artistic expression, the history of black music in Columbus, the dialogue within music, and specifically how we view music differently than other cultures, how music should be a function of society rather than a byproduct of it, the idea that music unlocks consciousness, the need for support on what Mark calls art music, why it's important to invest in art, and why it's our artists who are going to help us define Columbus to the world. You can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Also, The Confluence Cast is on Patreon. Find out how to support this podcast on our website, theconfluencecast.com, or at patreon.com confluence. The Confluence Cast is sponsored by Art Makes Columbus, Columbus Makes Art, featuring stories about our city's incredible artists, stories full of inspiration, challenge, passion, and success. For videos, articles, an up-to-the-minute calendar of events, and an artist directory, visit columbusmakesart.com, the resource for all things arts and culture in the capital city. Enjoy the interview. Sitting down here with Mark Lomax, the second composer, drummer, educator, collaborator, producer, Mark, how are you, sir? I'm fine. How are you? Tim? Doing well. How do you introduce yourself to people? You have a day job at the Columbus Foundation. You are also an accomplished composer and drummer uh, performing with groups all over the country, I assume the world. Mm, sometimes, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> You're also a father. Yeah. And uh, husband. And husband. Tell us about your work and what you are currently working on and what you're trying to accomplish with it. So vocationally, I've been a musician all my life, playing drums since I was two and became professional at 12, um, preacher's kid. Okay. Uh, my dad's a pastor of a church in Atlanta. My mother is a music minister, so I grew up working for them. Okay. And still do to a great extent because uh, you never just, you never outgrow that. Right. Um, but I uh, began playing for children's choirs and getting $85 a month uh, when I was working for my mom. That's at 12, though, right? That's at 12. So that's not bad. That's not bad at all. Right. She didn't have to buy me any video games or <laughs> anything. And then I became a professional jazz musician uh, at 14. Okay. Uh, playing my first gig with Gene Walker and Hank Marr. Okay. Uh, two legendary musicians that were in our community back then who have since passed. And then I became enamored with drummers like Tony Williams and Elvin Jones and uh, Max Roach and Ed Blackwell and being a young precocious musician I, I saw you know new possibilities in their work and wanted to emulate uh, my style uh, based on you know the precedent they had set and so uh, trying to do that it put me in a 
odd position with local musicians. Okay. Because I was experimenting a lot. Okay. And they didn't want that. <laughs> they just wanted you to show up and because play you were you were the young precocious one who was like trying to change things that were already established. Is exactly. What you're gotcha. Exactly. So I've never been one for uh, structure. I, I'll lead people who you know are leaders, mm -hmm. but I won't lead uh, or follow fools. Okay. So a lot of musicians, they you know I won't say they're fools, but they're foolish. Uh huh. You know, in the sense that they don't create a vision for their own artistic expression. Okay. You know, you listen to the records and you say, I want to play like Miles Davis. And then you're 60 years old playing like Miles Davis. But Miles Davis never tried to play like Miles Davis. Right. Well, he never kept playing like Miles Davis. Well, th that's what I'm saying. Right. You know, so he established Miles with uh, Charlie Parker in the 40s and 50s. But mm -hmm. by the late 50s, he had become a different Miles. And in the mid 60s, he was a different Miles. In the 70s, yet again, changed. Yes, I have those albums yeah. at home. <laughs> I don't know why my parents wanted them, but they certainly did. Right. And, and you know, all the great musicians, the great artists, mm -hmm. you know, around the world have always evolved. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the earlier lessons I took from that. And in and, and trying to continually evolve, you know, it often put me at odds with the quote-unquote jazz establishment. Okay. You're an adult man in your, what, late 30s? Yeah. Okay. I'm artistically still a kid. Right. But you, so <laughs> what I'm saying is you've been doing this for 25 years at right. this point. Right. Talk about your training a little bit. Was it pretty much self-taught from, you know, 12 to 14? So, I, yeah, I was self-taught uh, just watching drummers at church. Okay. And then a great guy named James Elliott, who's local, uh, he was a drummer. He came back from L.A. He was playing with uh, Jimmy Smith. And we were playing at a church, my mother and I, called Centenary United Methodist. Okay. And James, I, I think that was his home church. That's the church his mother went to. Okay. And he heard me play, and he heard something in that playing. And he convinced my mom to let him take me to a club. Okay. And so uh, I was 12 or 13 at the time. And that's how I met Hank Marr. And Gene Walker. Okay. Because uh, James took me to Jazz and Egg. So my mom wasn't cool enough at that time yet to let me go out to a nightclub. Right. But she would let me go to Jazz and Eggs, which was a jam session on Saturday mornings from okay. uh, like 10 to 1. Probably a little bit more family friendly. Exactly. It right. was at the Marble Gang. And, uh, you know, everybody was there. All the local musicians just soaking up, you know, the great vibration and uh, the history that Gene and Hank and others like Billy Brown, the drummer, uh, brought to the stage. And so, you know, James showed me how to hold the stick in a traditional grip and taught me how to swing and introduced me to Billy Brown. And I got to just sit and stare, literally. Okay. I'm the kid in a room, just, you know, eyes out of his head, watching Billy Brown and all these drummers get up there and play in a style that I had never heard before. Okay. And then I bought the record Miles Smiles as a result of that engagement. And I heard a uh, young, I think he was 16 or 18 years old, Tony Williams. Okay. You know, just my whole world opened up. Okay. You know, where, you know, the drums have a very utilitarian function. Mm -hmm. in, well, in, some see it in, that way, in, I imagine. Well, in church music. Okay. Right. In uh, this other expression that has been called jazz, I heard a kid, Tony Williams, driving the band and, you know, creating options artistically mm -hmm. that you could hear other musicians in the band picking up on. And then there's a dialogue. And I heard that right away, which I don't know if that's weird or unique, but it just struck me as, you know, the drums then had a voice. Okay. And so from then 
I didn't. I still didn't have formal training, but mm-hmm. I, I started listening more to African drumming. Okay. Because uh, I was familiar with the concept of the talking drum, mm-hmm. where drums, uh, particularly in uh, West African cultures, uh, speak the dialect of the people because it's a tonal instrument. Okay. You can change the pitches. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and then you know just listening and learning and 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 experimenting you know right to the point where church people didn't like to hear me play because i was experimenting everywhere in church too um and then i had my first formal lesson when i got to college okay and so you were we were talking a little bit before we got on mics that we both went to fort hayes Mm -hmm. you weren't getting formal training there i didn't even play drums at fort hayes i played piano okay i played piano in the um jazz ensemble okay and i played flute in the uh, concert band okay and so where did you seek out training in college? Well, I, I got a full ride to Ohio State the first time I went there okay. um, to play drums as a, a jazz studies major. Okay, cool. And so you've chosen to stay in Columbus and to be a professional musician. Talk about some of the projects that you've worked on or what you're working on now. Yeah, so uh, I did choose to stay in Columbus because when my wife was pregnant with our oldest daughter, Mm -hmm. uh, we were on the road and it just didn't work. She said, either you're going to come back here Mm -hmm. and and take care of your family or, you know, you can figure the rest out on your own. Right. So I love you, you, babe. Exactly. (laughs) So being that I love her. And your family. And my family. I, I did decide to come back. And that's when Full I... Full disclosure, your wife is sitting she's in the room. She's in the room. Right. So, so but that's, that's that how the story goes. That would not change anything no, that you say. No, But, uh, so in t- my intention was actually to move to either New York or New Orleans. Okay. Uh, but when we were on the road during that time in 01, uh, I got to see the business for what it really was. Mm-hmm. And so just timeline, you're, you're fresh out of college at that point. No, I was okay. still, I left college actually. Okay. I dropped out to go and, and just kind of be a musician for okay. a while. Cause I, but you are in your early twenties and you're yes. on the road. Yes. Got it. I like to learn. I like to read. I was reading Dostoevsky and James Cone, who's a theologian when I was 14, 15 years old. So okay. That wasn't an issue. A little heavy stuff. Yeah, a little bit. But, you know, <laughs> and I, I was trying to connect with my dad, who's a world-renowned theologian. Okay. Um, but I felt like college was sterile. I felt as an artist who had been a professional for a while by right. the time I got to college that I re- wasn't really being fed mm-hmm. the information that I thought was going to lead me or help me get to what I was hearing in my head artistically. Well, and I think Ohio State's a little bit of a different experience for people who especially grew up in an urban school system, and especially for yeah. Hayes, which is yeah. the actual physical structure is a series of buildings that is not unlike a small college exactly. campus. Exactly, exactly. And so you go to Ohio State, and you are put in lines, and you have a number, and you it's not prison, but you are certainly... It feels like it. <laughs> you are certainly told where to go. Right. And there isn't a whole lot of interaction, at least when you first get there as a freshman or even a sophomore, a whole lot of interaction with the people that are teaching you. There's this level of separation with like well, the TAs because it's just so big. Yeah, but that wasn't the case in the School of Music. Oh, okay. The School of Music, that's absolutely the case in the general courses. Okay. But the School of Music is still very small. Okay. If you think about Indiana University, it just as I think it's another Big Ten school, mm-hmm. if I remember, um, their School of Music has 2,500 students, Okay. five orchestras, and OSU has one orchestra. Uh, the last time I, I knew this number 
because I saw it somewhere. It was like less than 300. It was like 220, mm-hmm. 225 students total. Well, I remember seeing the practice rooms at one point when I was working at the Wexer Center, and I was like, this is, this is it. This is it. <laughs> this is all they have. Yeah. Wow. And so you brought up Fort Hayes, which is very interesting in terms of that transition uh, to being a full scholarship, student, merit, all that kind of stuff, right. and then not feeling fulfilled. Well, and so before you get into it, Fort Hayes, just for those that don't know who may be transplants to Columbus, Fort Hayes is the arts-focused high school. Mm-hmm. It's a lottery school only within Columbus City Schools. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and go on. And so my home school was Brookhaven, okay. which is now closed. So mm-hmm. grew up in Linden, went to Linden Elementary okay. on Westerville. And then went to Crestview Middle School okay. on Weber, which is also closed. Crestview is, I think now it's some kind of alternative school. I think it's a charter school now. Charter school. Yeah. And then I went to Brookhaven. Mm-hmm. And then Fort Hayes for those vocational years, the right. junior and senior years. And, you know, to his credit, Jim Maneri was our teacher. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a local musician that travels a lot. And, and you can and see him bands. at the Dude Operator. That's right. Every that's July right. July 4th. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he gave us a lot by not telling us a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, he trusted us like as musicians. You. Right, exactly. Exactly. You know, I remember the first day at Fort Hayes. He comes in and he drops a stack of tunes on the piano. And this was like a Wednesday. Okay. I think when school, the day school started for mm-hmm. that program. And he said, you have a performance on Friday. I need you to arrange two sets worth of music. And he left us alone. And some of you had never even arranged things before, Exactly. Right? Most of us hadn't. Okay. And had no clue. So it forced us to research because mm-hmm. we had to get a sense of what the original work sounded like. It forced us in two days to become a band. Okay. You know, because you had to hear everybody's ideas and then settle on the, the approach for all the arrangements that work together. And then you had to manage your time. Yeah. Because we were only there three and a half hours every day. Right. So from the time he dropped the music to the time it was time to play, we literally had less than 10 hours to put two sets together. And we had just met each other. How much forethought there must have been in that process to... Because what that truly teaches you is not necessarily to be a musician, but to be a good working musician. Right, right. To be able to go into a situation and say, okay, what has to get done Exactly. Here? And your hand's not going to get held and you're not, you know, it's not about style at that point. It's actually about creating a product exactly. that, that, that goes out into the world. And so having been in a position as a working drummer in all styles, when I was a teenager, I was in a rock band. Uh, I was in gospel groups. I was in a country folk band. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, I played everything, reggae, uh, hip hop, whatever the case may be, anything I could play, I played. Okay. You know, and then getting in an environment at Fort Hayes where now it was beyond just the instrument. You had to think about putting together a performance mm-hmm. and what, how to present yourself as professional musicians, right? Because you're getting paid, but you have to present a product to your point. And then you get to Ohio State where... It wasn't that. Okay. It was, here's your syllabus. These are the, these are the tunes you're going to play. You're going to play them this way because we're looking to grade you in this way. And, and so it was, for them, it was almost about, not to put words in your mouth, but about the repetition of this act so that you could become proficient in playing this one thing. Yeah, and, and, and from a very narrow perspective. And not working with other people. Exactly. And that's not what being a musician is about. At all, which is why I take issue with the term jazz, because since jazz programs have kind of proliferated through the academic space right. uh, from and the, the study mid-70s of jazz and the study of jazz right. in a codified way, mm-hmm. right? And to be clear on what you mean by codified, it is viewed, it's in books. <laughs> it is viewed one way. Right. It is not right. 
yes, jazz is musical interpretation, but it is not interpreted anymore. Exactly. It is presented as these are what scholars say about it. Much exactly. like modern art. Even contemporary classical music. Mm-hmm. I mean, the reason why we don't have orchestras pay- playing you know, living composers as much as I think as a composer they should mm-hmm. is because the rep you learn in school are all dead composers. Mm-hmm. It's very rare. And, and in fact, I would think it's a privilege to be in a program where you're playing as much contemporary music as you are music from the standard rep, mm-hmm. regardless of the art music genre, whether it's what we call jazz or classical, right? And so I make a distinction between jazz and art music, particularly in the African-American tradition, because jazz now to me represents what you're learning out of a book in a classroom. Okay. And it takes both the performative and the communal and communicative aspects right. away from the music, which you really find in the blues. Uh, and that's not really taught or valued as much as, you know, complex scales. Well, there wasn't changes, a movement like that. behind it, though. The jazz movement was seen very differently than the blues movement, right? It depends on who as, was looking okay. and observing, right? So if, if you read most of the literature on black music in America, mm-hmm. it's not written by black people. Right. Right. So you have a perception on the outside looking in and then kind of these values, right or wrong, you know, being placed on the product. Okay. You know, from Gunther Schuller to any, I mean, name any, anybody. Then you have scholars who are African-American like uh, Guthrie Ramsey mm-hmm. at University of Pennsylvania, uh, even Bill Banfield at uh, Berkeley College of Music, you know, who are not only practitioners mm-hmm. of the art form, but they were raised in the culture that created the art form. Okay. Right. And so they are able to. Inherently, ad- they have more inherent, authority right. to speak on it. Well, not just the authority, but the experiential aspect mm-hmm. that brings to life the three dimensions of the music itself. You got to think in African tradition, music was functional. Okay. There was no art for art's sake. That we hear, you know, composers like Mahler and Wagner and folks like that talking about. Okay. You know, music in in the African tradition across the continent, so we can't generalize. Right. You know, was a function of the society. You know, if you're born, there's music. If you die, there's music. If you're sick, there's music. If you, whatever the case may be, right? You get married, there's music. Right. Uh, if you're going to war, there's music. If you're hunting, there's music. I mean, it was a function. There was no separate word even for music dance or even magic okay you know but here in the western world you know we have these distinct binaries okay. you know like uh high art low art mm-hmm. and that applies to music um you can think about you know sacred and secular yeah you know again that didn't exist in africa right you know and so you when you're looking into a culture you know even if you've been in the midst it's still hard to really understand some of those things that aren't spoken you know, gospel music, mm-hmm. as different from uh, the traditional congregational approach to worship music, where everybody in the church sang. You know, gospel music was a creation of a musician uh, who was a blues musician. Okay. And he brings the blues aesthetic, performance style, uh, everything into the church mm-hmm. because he gets saved. Then the whole thing changes. And there's an issue there. Because he's coming from, quote, unquote, the world right. into a sacred space. Mm-hmm. But his thing was, Tommy Dorsey is his name. If he, if he got saved, mm-hmm. but he has this training, right? This background. That this he's background. Bringing. But now the inspiration for that product, that artistic product, is divine. Right. You know, does, doesn't that make the product <laughs> sacred? 
inherently inherently one would think right but we've now in the west had this tension Mm -hmm. between sacred secular high low all this other kind of stuff and and my point in all that is black music in general does not have that if you're looking at it through the lens uh, and lineage of African particularly West African music okay it's only having been socialized with the European or within the European construct that now this tension surfaces I see because if you think about the 50s all of our pop singers R&B singers were from the church right that that sound defines mm-hmm. the 50s 60s and 70s and even the 80s you know if you think about uh, Luther Vandross and okay and folks like that yeah I want to take a quick break here and play a track from your recent project that just came out in June drum versations yeah what are we going to listen to first here? You mentioned that you had worked with uh, Dion. I did. Dion Custer Edwards, she and I worked together at the Wexner Center. She's an educator there, also a spoken word artist as well. Mm-hmm. And here's Verity Rhythm off of Drum Versations. Belly full of season and leaf fall. 
sweet song of sweet song of rhythm rhythm sweet song of sweet song of rhythm 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 we all have heavy lifting inside these broken hearts. One day, sharp lines will lie in lightning, shutter sky a gaping wound. I come with numb and swollen self. My dignity competes with bell and clutter, slow rumble of fear and brave. Salt granules swallowed inside rain or rolling tide, clog and disorder, the tune of gray sky. Ball and chain, black eye, with one pin, one life full of gleam and tear, I seek some crooked letter trail to the truth. What must I do? 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 What must I? What must I do? What must I? What must I do? What must I? What must I do? What must I do? What must I? Sweet what? Sweet song of what must I? Sweet song of what must I do? Sweet song of what must I do? Sweet song of rhythm. What must I do? What must I? What must I do? What must I do? What must I do to be human, 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 human? That again was Verity Rhythm off of Drumversations by our guest here, Mark Lomax II. Talk about that project and what it is, what it means for you. So we, we spoke earlier about the talking drum. Yeah. And a few years ago, I started to shift again okay. in terms of uh, wanting to find a voice for my approach to the instrument, the drum set, that was unique okay. to, to not just my worldview, but how I hear music. And again, looking to Africa as a source of inspiration, the talking drum just came back to me. Okay. And the notion that, you know, after going through um, the rite of passage, oftentimes initiates got drum names. Okay. And so if there was a gathering or the elders wanted to summon someone, they would beat out their name on the drum. Right. You know, and the fact that you could have actual, real, understandable dialogue with a drum, right? You know that within the cosmology of the culture represents the first ancestor or the voice of God, was appealing to me, because in the West, in America, in Black popular music, in American popular music generally, you know the drum still has a, a background function, utilitarian function of keeping the beat so people can dance, right? Which is great. I don't, I don't have anything against that, and it's an art in and That's of itself. Its job within right this within construct. that scope, right? right? But then I started thinking about concepts like internalized oppression and surplus powerlessness. Okay, you know they are concepts within the realm of sociology and psychology that suggest that a people who have been under an oppressive regime for any amount of time will often 
become socialized to oppress themselves. So then their behaviors manifest the output that uh, an oppressor would expect from people that they were oppressing, right? So you think about, I grew up in Linden, and you see a lot of people in neighborhoods like Linden uh, who say, well, this is it. It becomes their expectation. It becomes their expectation, right? I believe that music is not only the healing power of the universe or healing force of the universe, to quote Albert Eiler, I also think that music unlocks the key to consciousness. Okay. Because it's vibration, it's energy. Mm -hmm. And so the intention of the artist, the composer, the performer, has a lot to do with how that music interacts with human physiology well, it's in terms of the audience. Right? It's connection, but yeah. it's at a higher level that we don't often understand it. Higher level in terms of vibration, lower level in terms of consciousness. Okay. Because a lot of the music uh, interacts with people, the listener, at a subconscious level. Okay. You know, so if you think about uh, contemporary hip hop, the beats that they're using in trap music are mm -hmm. slowed down African rhythms. Yes. It's the agogic timeline. It's, it's all of that. I mean, I could speed it up and it would sound like a West African drum choir. And so I think genetically, you know, African-Americans particularly are predisposed to the conversation that that rhythm has with our bodies. Okay. And so it brings down certain filters. Okay. When those filters are down. And this is evolutionary, I assume, right? I think so. Okay. I think so. That's what my research tells me. Okay. Um, is but, this a popular theory? No. It, okay. I, I this, have, is, this is all. I'm arguing with people all over all the country. This is all Dr. Mark Lomax yeah, II. Exactly. Okay. Um, cool. Based on cymatics. Cymatics is the study of how vibration affects human physiology. Okay. Uh, so we're predisposed to rhythm. Human beings are, period. Right. So when you get a rhythm that has historical significance, even spiritual significance, it brings down certain filters, and then you put content that's not necessarily healthy over top of that rhythm. And then, then it, it automatically translates and becomes a part there of you subconsciously go. of this is what I identify with. Exactly. And we, we have scientific proof of this okay. in the work of uh, Dr. Masaru Emoto. Uh, there's a great documentary on uh, YouTube called Messages from Water. And he actually wrote a book of the same title okay. where he gets uh, people in Japan together to bless water. And when they bless the water, first of all, it's regular tap water. Mm -hmm. And he puts it under a microscope. You can't see anything. It's just kind of water, clear. People bless it. He freezes it, put it under the microscope again. It has these beautiful geometric shapes. Okay. Right, where first it had nothing. It was clear. After it was blessed, it has these beautiful shapes, right? Um, then they take the same tap water and they curse it. And when he looks at it again under the microscope, it has these disfigured shapes. Okay. So what does that tell us? It tells us that not only do our words have meaning, but the intention behind the word mm -hmm. has meaning. Therefore, the extension of that idea to music makes sense based on that kind of art, uh, scientific work. And so talk about then drum versations. So the drum versations. And how does that yep. translate? So the idea of the drums and their function, I'm thinking, well, if these rhythms have some kind of intuitive or subconscious uh, meaning for us, you know, but we're not intending or using an intention that's healthy. Mm -hmm. How do we then understand the language that's bad for us versus the language that's good for us? Okay. And going back to the talking drums, the talking drums, we had active conversations with the instrument. Right. Where now we don't. Okay. So we've forgotten the language of the instrument. And as a result, I think our collective conscious and health is at risk. Okay. And so if you think about the difference in rhythms between African and European, you know, it's stark. You know, European is fairly linear, a two-beat system, one, mm -hmm. two, military, march, it's right. boom, it's very static. Whereas African is 12 
six threes. Okay. So where the uh, European is going in the strict one, two, one, two, the African is going one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. Okay. Right. And why that's important is because that six or that 12 is in vibration or rhythm with the earth. Okay. The earth spins. And if you think about that linear European rhythm, the African rhythm runs a circle around it. And so it connects every so often, but there's so much room and things to do. And it's the circle, the circle of life. There's all of this stuff that you can connect right. to that form of rhythm. The four or the two that's in European music is there too. Right. It's all encompassing. Whereas the linear rhythm leaves something out, the African rhythm is all inclusive, right? So it has a lot to but do. But it is all connected. It, it, that's my point. Right. So whereas I think, therefore, I am is a European construct, I am because you are is an African construct. So again, that all-encompassing, all-inclusive, we are here because we are here. Right. Not I, me, right? And this is a lot of your spirituality too, though. Yeah, right? it does. I mean, and it's not Christianity necessarily. I mean, okay. I grew up in that space. But the drums... Do you go to church now? No. Okay. I'm just <laughs> I'm curious. A, I'm a preacher's kid, and I, I'm, I'm probably... My no, feet would burn up if burn, I could say... Burn too many times. <laughs> but, you know, the idea is if the, if the role of the drum was not only to communicate between people and the universe, or God, or however you want to describe that mm -hmm. energy, but to heal, okay, then you have to get people to a point where they understand the language of the instrument so they can be open to that healing, right? So I wanted to do something completely different from the functional aspect of the instrument. The drum versations, what led up to that, three albums of solo drum set music, okay. where I was really exploring the, a new, for me, language of the instrument. And then I wanted to apply that to voice, the nomo, the sound, the intention uh, that comes from artists who I know are writing from a particular perspective. And so that's what Drumversations is. It's a conversation between the poet mm -hmm. and the human voice and the drum and the voice, therefore, uh, you know, by extension of the universe. And so the next iteration of Drumversations will be me playing the poems without the voices. Okay. Developing a language on the instrument that can be hopefully understood by people who we want to put the time in right. to learn that new language. Okay. You know. I want to put a pin on this and just play one more piece from Drumversations, the Scott Woods piece. Scott was on the Confluence cast a couple of months ago uh, at the time for Holler 30. So let's listen to Scott Woods' piece. Smile. Love it. 
Boyo, what you smiling for? You love it when we smile. You know you love it. This your house. This your club. You should see my place. It's a hovel. It's a shack. You like this suit? Cost me six months rent. My lady ain't seen me one night this week. Out here smiling. Cause you love it when we smile. Can't get the gig without the smile. How you play the blues smiling? How you play that? Got our swing from poplar trees. Put it in them drums. The sticks and the shells. Bet you can't hear the wind in them side sticks from all this smiling we do. Lips cracking across dry teeth. A march of tombstones bleached in the sun. Breathe through your nose all night cause your mouth a gate. Boy, what you smiling for? Don't you know where you are? It ain't called the Cotton Club for nothing. Pick them sticks. Pick them taps. Pick them lights. Burn that cork till it make your teeth white when you smile in all that darkness. Ain't seen a dentist in years. Teeth so white it can order drinks at the bar. How you do that, boy? Make your teeth white out of thin air. Must be all that practice you do. All that smiling you have to muster before you plow, before you strike, before you strum, before you pick. Boy, what you smiling for? Don't you know when you are? Oh, oh, I get it. That's what it's about. Could always be worse. You could have to work for a non-living. How much air you suck through them teeth when they call you out your name? All of it, I bet. Can't see how anybody can breathe in here. All that disdain sopped up in your mouth like Mississippi gravy in a biscuit. Don't you know who you are? No? Don't you know what you are? No? There's policy and procedures. Then there's rules. Number two, you ain't never supposed to talk back. Not to the dishwasher, to the valet, to the bouncer. They step on your shoes and that's just another tooth to fit into your face. Guess what number one is? Boy, what you smiling for? Cause you know what this is? This an opportunity. You get to dance all night. You was gonna do that anyway, wasn't you, boy? Dancing. Wish you could dance in here. Best be on that stage, smiling. You wanna tap on that sand in here, make sure you got a broom. Initiative cost. And you don't make but so much an hour. Did I say hour? Like you had a choice to leave early? That one's on me. Stay right there. Boy, you know the words, right? Let me hear you say them. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. 
Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. What you smiling for? Spare change? Tips? An offering? Here's a tip. Smile for your life, boy. You got it now. Got that smile burning. Share that smile. They know the words. Watch. After me. Is you is. Is you is. Is you is. Or is you ain't my master. See how we do? Sneak it on in. Slide on your belly under the brush. Wait for the moonlight to get just right. Then you break for it faster than a dog. Faster than a horse, faster than a bullet, faster than a river going the other way, faster than a moonbeam wants to pick you up, take you over there, where, over there, where, over there, look, there's a fire over there, they dancing over there, babies, lovers, the blackest sculptures you've ever seen, onyx in motion. Fine art. Won't see its kind for another 400 years. All beautiful in a blaze like that. You're going to be able to buy it off the street one day. Right out of flea market. It's going to speak to you and you ain't going to know what it's saying. But you know it's saying something slick. Something underbrush. Bush tongue. Drum tongue. Running away tongue. A tongue falling out its mouth out of breath as it runs every step. A new land, another place you are not sure you should be. Mousetrap in a bear trap. Once you see it, you reach down. Pick your tongue up off the soil and silk dust it off before you roll it up. Set it gently back into the cage of your demeanor and need. And you smile. Boy, what you crying for? This a good job. This a good gig. Boy, what you dying for? Ain't we been good to you? Ain't we been just? Don't you matter? Boy, what you frying for? All crime is equal under the eyes of the Lord. Got a pillow on his chair just for you. Boy, what you lying for? Keep your back straight before that flag. Put your hand over your heart you lucky to have. Lock your knees together under them pads. Look at everything you got and be glad. Boy, what you smiling for? Why are you smiling? How you play them songs and keep that smile going like that? How you trap them blues and keep that grin in place? How you pray with your teeth so tight? What you smiling for? What you smiling for? What you smiling for? Again, that was Scott Woods performing on Drumversations, Mark Lomax, the second album. We sort of jokingly stated, and while it may be the most extreme truth with a capital T, uh, that you stay in Columbus because of your family and because of your lovely wife. Mm. Again, she's still in the room. <laughs> uh, 
talk about what you see in the Columbus music scene. You know, you're coming here, you just performed at a very wet jazz and rib fest. Yeah. What is good about the Columbus music scene? Where can it improve? How do you see the landscape? So what's good about the Columbus music scene is that as it relates to popular music, it's everywhere. It, okay. I mean, if you're playing in a cover band that's doing popular music, no matter what the genre is. I think that's true in any predominantly middle class, <laughs> affluent, white controlled yeah. music performance who can cover hits from the mid 2000s. Right. They're going to be fine. Yeah. And they work and they, they make a lot of money and people are happy to dance and, and right. all that kind of stuff. I agree with that premise that that's probably the case anywhere. Mm-hmm. What I don't see, though, is a large market even half the size of that supporting art music. Okay. You know, we've Define had art music to me. Art music is not popular <laughs> Okay. I mean, by, by, by definition. And, and what I mean by that is not in the mainstream. So where popular music might be an artist, everybody knows Beyonce, okay. Jay-Z, you know, whatever the case may be, you know, be, and, and the difference is the level of, and this is subjective. So okay. I, I'll, I'll, I'll go there with it, but the level of craft that goes into it. Okay. Right. As great as Beyonce is, there's a formula there. Right. And there's a formula that works. And if they leave that formula, it doesn't sell. Mm-hmm. That's why if you look at the sum total of her body of work, I mean, there are all kind of similarities there. That, you know, you don't see any real risk right. artistically. Right. Um, but then, you know, a bright spot in that locally is the Johnstone Fund for New Music. Okay. You know, Jack and Zoe Johnstone are a couple of music lovers, appreciators. Jack, uh, I think, has a doctorate in ethnomusicology. Okay. Uh, He plays an instrument. He understands music. Zoe's a pianist. And they (laughs) single-handedly, literally, fund, you know, new music concerts in our city on Wednesdays. Okay. You know, they're typically held at the Short North Stage, the Garden Theater. And, you know, they commission work. And it's not all the same. I mean, it's different. It might be completely atonal, avant-garde, contemporary, classical music. Okay. It might be me with a string quartet and a jazz group trying to find an organic hybrid between the two artistic languages. Okay. You know, uh, so, I mean, there's a wide gamut and we have a a solid following for that series, Mm -hmm. but it's the only series of its type in the city, you know, and in... A, a metro area of over a million people, you would think that we would be able to support, you know, art music in, in, in a better way, a more substantive way. Well, there are certainly some underground venues that are trying to do some interesting things. Let's talk about that scene nationally then. Mm-hmm. Are there, what could solve that? Could more organizations like the Wexner Center bringing in more work like that? Or why would they have to bring it in? I mean, we have people here that do Are there it. people that, I'm sorry, there is a big scene. It's just, there, there's, there's no, an audience so for it. We, we do a great job in Columbus of exporting talent. Okay. Because there's really no place for the talent to have a home here. In Chicago, that's not the case. Right. You know, Chicago, even more than New York, Nicole Mitchell, Nikki Mitchell. Okay. She's a flautist and she has this wonderful ensemble that's an experimental group. They, they blend everything okay you know uh, she has strings she has some woodwinds there's some percussionists and they all improvise but they all are classically trained and so their product their their musical adventure Mm -hmm. you know is the sum total of the american experience okay you know in america where we still are trying to figure out what american music is as it relates to the art music Mm -hmm. you know i think the blending of 
the African-American and the European-American and everything in between in the work that she does is a prime example of that. Renee Baker, also in Chicago, has the Chicago Modern Orchestra Project. Are these people that Columbus has lost? No, I'm just saying Chicago is a place where you can cultivate that talent and they have a home there in the city. You know, those are two ladies in particular that I know of their work and they're doing great and they're getting commissions and they're having performances. And I mean, the Chicago Modern Orchestra Project has 30 members that okay. she can pay for performances. And so what you know, you're we saying don't is have we that simply here in need a, an existing funding model to provide for this work to be created. Yeah, it's created and sustained. You know, okay. and I think we do have it. We just don't apply it in the way that makes the most sense for that particular space because... A great example of where Columbus does well in the mm-hmm. arts is the visual arts world. Yeah. You know, and I know some people will, you know, challenge that, but you can walk anywhere in the central city, you know, a certain area like the we short need north. More public art though, you but wouldn't argue. We do that. need I'm not I'm not saying that it's perfect. Right. But I'm saying compared to the music we scene. We do a good job of supporting it. Right. And try, I think we are still so young in that space mm-hmm. that we're trying to find quick solutions. Like, Instead of substantive solutions. Like the, <laughs> not that they're not great. The, yeah. The Short North Mural Project is fine. Yeah. But it's a recreation of art in a different space that is simply a visual representation of art that, frankly, you're looking at a billboard. Right. <laughs> and there are a lot of opportunities. And I think you'll see as construction sort of builds up in whatever the Short North has sort of become at this point, you're going to see a whole lot more actual art i would hope so which is fantastic i would hope so i I would i but what i I don't see in those plans mm -hmm. are venues to present music that pushes man real estate's expensive (laughs) like but you know here's the here's the interesting thing though we we have the king arts complex mm -hmm. not there we have the Lincoln Theater. It's debatable depending on how you, I mean. Well, and so then you're starting you know, to make an argument and I don't, I am not going to make any statements about how those venues are controlled. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, those venues are controlled by King Arts Complex is independent and has its but own. Kappa. Right. But, but then Kappa mm-hmm. controls every venue that is meant for performing arts, not like nationwide arena. Or right. Anything. But that's why I brought up the fact that in, in a metro area of a million plus, right. we should not have a One game Buckeye oriented mindset when it comes to our cultural product. Okay. You know what I mean by that? Because Ohio State is Ohio State and I'm a three times Buckeye. So mm-hmm. there you go. Um, you know, we can't have a professional team. Right. Because the city can't support it. Because the city can't support it. Right. So how is it that with all the great stuff that Kappa brings to our city, we still don't have the bandwidth to cultivate the artists here mm-hmm. in that in a similar space? And none of us are competing with these national folks. Right. And I think one of the benefits of having stayed in Columbus is that I've not gotten caught up in that New York thing or in that West Coast thing where okay. everybody really kind of sounds the same. Okay. You know, in, in trying to create a niche for myself here. Do you feel like you're creating in a bubble, though? I mean, if there's not as many working artists, mm-hmm. and, and while you are a working artist, you also have a day job. I do. That, that you're passionate about, and that's great. Right. But but I'm also engaged with artists nationally and internationally. Okay. You know, I'm a member of a charter member. So you member. are getting those, that right. influence. I'm a charter member of the Composers of Color Collective, which um, represents the less than 30 African-American composers with terminal degrees in classical composition. Okay. You know, so I have the benefit of those conversations where I'm hearing people creating in Boston, in New York, in L.A., in 
the South. Uh, you know, I, how are those conversations happening? I'm just curious. Like, oh, do you guys have an annual internet meeting? threads? Okay. We have a biannual conference okay. uh, that I hope to host here in 2020. That would be fantastic. Uh, our next one in 18 is going to be in Atlanta. Okay. And, and uh, you know, these are people who were trained at Yale, at Harvard, at Berkeley College of Music, at Stanford. I mean, from real schools, real training, you know, that are thinking, you know, and, and you can argue that art music, particularly African-Americans in that classical space are in their own bubble okay because the relevance of our work is questionable well you don't believe that i do believe that okay in fact i argue that in, in my dissertation that if you know black artistic products are invisible because we don't have the same level of access then they're inherently not viable unless or- right no exactly unless we change that okay you know there's a gap in the market we need to think like entrepreneurs and create that Okay. You know, and the reason why that applies to this group of people, maybe more than some other folks here locally, is because they have resources. They have access to resources. You know, when you're a college professor at the level that, that these some of my are. colleagues are, right. you know, they can do some things if they just put their minds to it. Okay. In Columbus, we don't yet have the infrastructure to have that same impact. We can build it, I think. Okay. You know, th- I think there is support. So is who is the onus on then to help generate the support, generate this audience, generate those venues? Is it the community as a whole? Is it the artists asking for it more? What is the first step in solving this problem? I think it's a both end. Okay. I think arts in general in American culture suffers from the fact that we don't have a foundational understanding of the importance of artistic thinking of creativity that keeps folks out of the box and thinking forward. Right. right? Well, and it's, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, we have music and then we have life. And right. They are not, and they are separated. <laughs> exactly. Right? Exactly. Right. So we push for STEM and not STEAM. So if you want innovation, how do you do that without some kind of creative process? Right. It doesn't happen. Well, and I just want to point out to sort of bring things that full circle that not only were you the kid at 12 who in church was, you know, experimenting with the drums and people didn't necessarily want to hear it. You're the charter member of a national organization that's sort of saying, guys, you need to get off your asses and do it yourselves. Right. 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 And, and, and that really is my message here locally. For instance, Holler is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. And that was Scott's baby, his brainchild. Uh, but and he did good. But I, I would argue that there was not enough community support behind it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. But that's my point. Right. And, and the idea is that I think the onus is on the artist to prove that mm-hmm. one, it can work, mm-hmm. particularly in our community. Because so you're as, saying the onus was on Scott. Well, he and he did it. Mm-hmm. He proved that it's viable. It made money. It did well. People supported it. Right. right. But on the front end, he didn't have the same level of support. Right. That he would have had he said at the end, and everybody saw it was successful. Said I'm gonna do it again next year. Right. And I think people would have written checks. Absolutely. But the fact that he's not gonna do it now. What is the role of the community to say, you know what? We had this. It was beautiful. It changed. He has something. said he's not doing it yeah. again. I yeah. didn't know that. I've, I've been pushing him. Everybody's been pushing him, but he's not going to do it. You know, and so now that we see that it works, right. I think it's the community's role, community's job, really, to ensure that we have something like that that happens regularly. Mm-hmm. You know, because there are a lot of great artists here, artists of note. Right. And there's no home for us here. Okay. But that presents an opportunity. It's time to build a house. It's time to build a house. Yeah. You know, the last thing I would share kind of along those same lines Mm -hmm. is, you know, I think as Columbus grows, uh, I think I heard recently we're now the 14th 
largest city. Yes, uh, metropolitan uh, area. Yep, that's us. It's our artists who are going to help us define who we are mm-hmm. to the world. And I think it's time we start thinking about that. The first thing we have to do is be open to that conversation, number one, and, and to be serious about making financial commitments yeah. to bolster our artistic community. We do well with bringing things into our community mm-hmm. at the expense of what's already here in many cases. So I think we have the artists, we have the talent, we have the vision within the artistic community that if we could just have a conversation with you know the powers that be and say, this is how we can make Columbus a destination city. Right. And not just a fly over. Do you think it's a conversation that needs to happen or do you think it's more people stepping up and just doing it? I think it's a both and. Okay. I, I'm, I don't really like binaries. Okay. But in, in, okay, in, fair. In, in the uh, example of Holler though, Scott did it. Right. And the arts community supported him and we accomplished something, you know. And but now, he had to prove a lot. But, and like, and I think we're still in that place, and unfortunately. I don't know how this is coming off in terms of how we're talking about Scott. Yeah, he did Scott's a, brilliant. He's, he did a fantastic <laughs> and amazing job and had to work against. Mm-hmm. You can listen to the interview that we did that when we were still talking probably a month and a half or two months out. He knew it was going to happen, but he didn't know it was going to happen. Right. Like he, he didn't know if he was going to accomplish his vision and he did that and more. Right. And see, the thing is, had we been in a more forward thinking space in terms of the city itself, never would have had a doubt. Never would have had a doubt. Yeah. And if Columbus is going to continue to grow and mature into a major city, Mm -hmm. then we have to not just be forward thinking, but be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. We have to take those kind of risks. Great. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for listening to the Confluence Cast presented by Columbus Underground. Again, you can get more information on what we discussed today in the show notes for this episode at theconfluencecast.com. Please rate, subscribe, share this episode of the Confluence Cast with your friends, family, contacts, enemies, your favorite drummer. If you're interested in sponsoring the Confluence Cast, get in touch with us. We can be reached by email at info at theconfluencecast.com. Our theme music was composed by Benji Robinson. I'm your host, Tim Fulton. Have a great week. (music) 